Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. I'm Luke Fraser, Masters Champion 2023, and you're listening to Countercharge. And I'm Rough Enough, and we've got Luke back on the show to go into the List Builder Studio. We're really excited about that. It's an opportunity for us to pick his brain, dive deep figure out all the great tips and tricks he's got for building armies. Find some scary secrets while you're in there. Absolutely. So Luke, let's remind the audience, who are you? I am Luke is my name. I live in the Canadian Pacific Northwest. I'm out of Vancouver. You can find me at such um, prestigious events as uh, Rose City Rumble, uh, Bothell Brawl, Kipper's Melee, uh, all ones that you have never heard of unless you live in the Pacific Northwest. Kippers is actually in Canada, right? It is, yeah. Rose City is in Portland, and Bothell is in near Seattle. And that's the one run by Ryan Munsell, I think. That's right. How is the scene out there right now? It's sort of in a holding pattern, you know? Um, like, I'm, I'm sort of the, the local community head, and I've been a little low energy the last couple months as the uh, the weather gets gets away from us um but uh yeah it's it's fine you know like it's it's a huge geographic region and the hubs are like a little split, split apart so it can be tough to get those those you know 20 30 person events but we we do our best every fall we have the you know we know there's an impending clash of kings yeah. coming out and it i don't know about you but it kind of sucks the motivation for me to like paint a little something bit. new a little bit yeah I want to save it up because once I get the book, I'm going to be inspired and I'm, I'm going to want to jump into something. And then every year I tell myself that I'm going to spend, you know, the month of December where it's cold and I'm stuck inside and over Christmas, you know, hobbying up a new army. And then uh, middle of January comes around and somehow I have no more painted models than I did before. So we'll see how this year treats me. <laughs> On that note, what armies do you play? Mostly Trident Realm. I'm best known for Trident Realm. Um, that's what I took to Masters. I have been working on. Uh, Night Stalkers and Northern Alliance for well, first Night Stalkers and now Northern Alliance, um, because I've I've promised myself and hopefully I don't break this promise to take a fully Mantic army to Masters next year, um, and then Night Stalkers kind of has the best model line of of uh, Mantic stuff, especially like the the new Butchers and the Plastic Tormentors I really like, so um, those those are great, and then. Uh, relevant to a list builder studio, I got really uh, enamored with. Uh, ice naiads so i just i just started started ticking away in the old brain um and i've got this this big old spreadsheet with uh the expected damage values of just a, a variety of sample hammers into a regiment of ice naiads and uh yeah that that math was compelling enough that i uh bought a whole bunch of uh, north alliance stuff so i have noticed a lot more ice naiads on the table of late oh they, they got way better yeah i've been seeing them over and over and it's like they're, you know, them and obviously the changes to the ice elementals have seen a yeah. resurgence in those guys yeah. as well. Yeah. So Northern Alliance is a very fun army. You mentioned Night Stalkers. I agree with you 100%. The Butchers and the Reapers, the Tormentor kit, so fantastic. And then that coupled with the availability of a lot of the the bigger uh, resin models, which are great, but most of them ha are not like Soul Flayers are now available for 3D prints off the vault. 
I do 3D print. So when I saw Soul Flares and Fiends in the vault, I was like, oh, that's an easy choice. The Shadow Hulk kit, yep, which yep. I know you got to buy the base giant. Still quite a few uh, floating out there. So a friend of mine had a, had a spare. I traded him about 40 printed Mantic throwing mastiffs. So I don't know if you've seen the throwing mastiffs in the vault. They are Love them. so cute. They just look so sad. Oh, perfect. So now he has, he has three regiments of um, mastiff troops, and they're just they're perfect. I love them. With that intro, I think you've set it up perfectly. For those that don't know, Luke is the reigning U.S. master. Ironically, he is from Canada. <laughs> Pacific Northwest, Northeast regions, they don't have any residency requirements. I mean, Canada's fake anyway, so. Well, maybe not the <laughs> West Coast, right? The West Coast, you guys legitimately show up. Half the team from the Pacific Northwest is Canadians. I think that probably says more about uh, the Portland and Seattle scenes than it does about, <laughs> about the Canadians. Is it the quality but, of their play or their ability to go to events? Uh, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. Well, let's get into the List Builder Studio. Absolutely. The List Builder Studio. Very first question, Luke. What draws you to an army? Is, is it the models? You know, the aesthetic of the army? Is it how the army plays? A perceived weakness or a perceived advantage? Is it what you don't see on the scene very much and you're trying to play against meta? Just talk to me about what draws you to an army. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit of everything, really. Uh, but probably like the, the single biggest thing is novelty of some kind. Um, like whether that's uh, a compelling special rule on a model or just a, a strategy that it can enable uh, or just like minis that I like. Like it usually one thing will draw me in and then I will uh, try to find an excuse to build an army around it. Uh, historically, it's usually been a model line. Um, you know, find some some minis that I really like and, and just want to spend time hobbying and playing with, and then seeing if I can build a compelling list out of it. Um, like I've always been a pretty competitive guy, not always very successful, um, but recently I have been. Um, so something that um, you know has a has a good shot at at winning, uh, but also that plays in the way I enjoy. I don't know how many of your listeners regularly play against Trident Realm, but it's a deeply, deeply weird army. Um, and it has a lot of really powerful denial tools. Uh, and it's like, it's very extreme. It'll be really, really strong in the right situation and then fall over dead flat in the wrong situation. So that, that sort of like concentration and really specialized strength always draws me in because it's, 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 it's neat. It's fun uh, to really take advantage of that. And I, I really like the the high highs that come from really getting the most out of a unit and how it's like super, super strong, even if overall it's fine or mediocre sort of thing. Try Rums is an interesting army. There's a perception where people think they're weak. They have low defense. Yeah, yeah. But Ensnare is there to kind of offset that. Until you figured it out, uh, you don't realize that defense three with Ensnare is basically as sticky as defense five in melee, of course, and shooting is much worse, but... Um, yeah, so um, most recently, the two that I've been looking at, uh, Night Stalkers and Northern Alliance, um, you know, the one was sort of like a, a decision to do the, the Mantic project, because, I mean, if you're interested, you can go back and listen to my uh, master's interview where I talk about it more, um, but just fundamentally deciding that buying into the, the Mantic fiction, more than supporting the company itself, um, but from a community standpoint, um, sort of representing that that official line if you want um, and then night stalkers were 
by far the model line I like best. Um, and then like Tormentors, I've been building around a lot because they're very weird. Like they're super, super fragile and they hit sort of hard and they've got the weird leaper rule where they can see over height too. So yeah, that's, that's fun and novel. And it's one of those things where, you know, if you mess up their positioning and they get attacked much at all, they're going to die and you're going to have a bad time. But if you can deliver them consistently without uh, them getting hit in return, you're going to have a great time. There's some parallel to Tormentors to Trident Realms, right? For sure. I could see if, if you like Trident Realms that this would also be a unit that might yeah. be of interest to you because you have to play them well. They're, they're a scalpel. Yeah. If you don't get it in the right spot, they die relatively easy and they, they don't have a great impact. Uh, more than once, a Lightning Bolt 3 has picked up a troop. And it's like, oh, well, <laughs> that feels bad. Where does the inspiration for a new project originate? Is it just on paper you saw a unit or do you ever, I love this model. Just talk to me about where you get inspiration for your next army. Yeah, it, it definitely has been both ways. Um, like a project that I abandoned, I don't know, a little over a year ago. Um, was a 3D printed line uh, from Bestiarum, uh, the Calden Keep minis. They're, they're very Dark Souls in aesthetic. Um, and I saw them and I was playing Dark Souls 3 at the time. So I just, you know, absolutely loved them. I was like, okay, I got to print these and I got to make an army. Um, so I spent like two months trying to figure out the best list for them. And I jumped back and forth between Night Stalkers and Varanger and briefly Northern Alliance, just sort of trying to figure out the best uh, mechanics that would give me an excuse to play with the miniatures that I wanted. Um, but I've also done it the other way, like um, an army that I haven't pulled the trigger on, but that I'm always sort of looking at is Abyssal Dwarves, um, mostly because uh, Abyssal Halfbreeds, the cavalry, I really, really like their stat line. And they keep getting better every year. So it's always like just a little bit tempting. Um, but if <laughs> if... Uh, Mantic had put out a plastic kit for them, I would almost certainly be playing Abyssal Dwarves right now, just because I really like their type of play that that stat line uh, pushes and rewards. Like, you know, a defense four cav unit is pretty squishy, but they've got fury and regeneration. So if you can pick the right fight for them, then they can grind really well. It's one of those things where it's, it's got high highs and low lows sort of thing. And there's, there's so many armies that it's tough to be really familiar with every one of them. But, you know, every now and then I'll just get curious and say, you know, what's going on with, with Rordia or something? And, like, you know, try to figure out, you know, and, like, really, really look. Because it's, it's pretty easy to overlook things. Um, like, for example, the, the recent Riftforged Orcs change in this, this book, I was pretty disappointed when I first read through it. Um, because I've, I don't know, I feel like Riftforge got a little bit left behind, um, especially for how new the plastic kits are. They just don't feel that well supported. So I, I saw that most of the changes were just like bringing more orc units in. I thought like, oh, what the hell good does that do? But then you start thinking about like, even if it's only rally one, how good the war drums actually are. And like, you know, it's still a scoring monster for what are they like 90 points, 110 points, something like that. It's a pretty cheap scoring monster with rally and Riftforge have pretty good nerve to begin with, unlike orcs. So like, okay, suddenly you've got a bunch of, 16, 18 regiments and some of which inspire and some of them fly or your, your like fearless 15 Riftwalker troops. But yeah, like it's, it's really easy. And you know, like it's the classic thing. Like the King's stat line is pretty simple, but once you start really thinking about it, the difference between a whatever, 18 attack, melee three, crush one unit and a 24 attack, melee four, crush one, thunder one unit, like thinking about the scenarios in which one excels over the other, 
that really informs how you're going to play and succeed with it. So I've, I've found that uh, it can be pretty difficult to get a good vibe for a list or even any particular unit by glancing at it. You really got to sort of like dig into it a little bit. And uh, if you're me, it helps to build some spreadsheets. Many times when you're building a new army, you've got this maybe one particular unit or one shtick that you think, oh, this is an interesting concept. I'm going to, yeah. and you start there and you, and you build off of it. Are there additional foundational concepts that you use in list building? Well, I, I try to think about, and I'm not, I'm not particularly good at this here, but I try to think about how I want a list to win. Because I mean, fundamentally, you know, the scenarios all score differently, but fundamentally you have to fight and kill your opponent. If you want to win, I, I usually call it doing work. Like, uh, and, and Trident Realm is a good example because a lot of their units are very, very tanky, at least in the right matchup. Like, like take Placoderms, for example. They're defense six with Phalanx, uh, but they got 15 attacks on fours with no crush. So although they are in like insanely durable, they do not do any work. They stand around, they, they have unit strength, and they don't die. But like without supporting them with a damage dealer or something, you, you cannot hope to succeed. So... I try to think of the elements in my army that can actually reliably yeah, do, do work, like uh, exert power on the board to either like at least threaten board space or kill things when they, when they get an opportunity to do so. Um, and without, you know, a good four or so of those, um, and like, you know, obviously it varies depending on what the rest of the army does. Like if, you, if you've got a lot of sort of medium fighty units, then, Together, they will end up, you know, contributing the same, a similar amount of damage. Um, whereas something like uh, the four hammer undead list that was popular like two years ago, you have those really like concentrated elements that can, like as long as they're delivered, they will individually contribute a lot. Um, but you have to rely on them. So I try to think of how the list wants to win, and then what units will actually be performing the active role i guess you could say do you use combat groups when you're building a list like like somewhat uh and actually my most recent my, my recent build with northern alliance is like weirdly rigid uh i do cad for a living um so i've been figuring out like the, the optimal spacing to uh basically to guarantee flank charges with ice elementals spoken like a pure engineer <laughs> yeah sometimes they write themselves like Trident Realm has the Thule formation, uh, which basically wants to run together all the time. Every time that I've split it up, I've regretted it. Um, so, and you know, you want a certain amount of inspiring sort of spread out. So I don't usually do rigid combat groups. Um, and most of the time when I'm deploying, uh, rather than thinking of sort of groups of units going together, I think about the terrain on the table. Because um, usually you're only going to have, you know, sort of two or three lanes, if you want to call them, uh, which is to say places you can move at the double without rough terrain or obstacles being in the way. Because depending on how much Pathfinder you have, and that's another thing is I, I try to always include a base level of terrain mitigation, because no matter what, like there's going to be a forest or a pond either in or near your deployment zone. So if you want to deploy in a way that's advantageous for excuse me, um, the scenario and the matchup, you know, if, if your opponent has a big block of pikes in the middle, you don't want to put your, your flying cavalry across from them. Um, so having that flexibility with a, a unit that's, that doesn't suffer in terrain, that can actually go there, 
that's usually my, my first step in deployment is who can go where and then work backwards from there. The obvious stuff goes in the obvious spot. Right. I think it was Aaron Chapman said it many years ago. That's where it's going to go. Right. <laughs> so that's going to be my first drop. Depending on how many drops you have, like if you're an elf player running with 10 or 11 drops, you just don't get the choice, okay? You, you got to put stuff where it's going to go and your opponent's going to counter deploy you and you're going to have to live with that. But if you have a more normal sort of, you know, 13 to 15 drops, uh, try to prioritize the ones that you care about responding with uh, and the rest just put them where they go. And if you're the type of player that really, really wants that deployment advantage, it's probably not a good strategy. But uh, play ogres and take three regiments of warriors with a matriarch and the scrying gem. And then put those regiments just on your backfield and basically have your opponent deploy like, what, four to six drops before you commit to any of them. It's probably bad, but it's very funny. It's a similar tactic to using the captain in Kingdoms of Men and the scrying gem. Yeah, I'm, I'm always surprised that that deployment advantage isn't or doesn't feel better than it does like it uh, it seems to me that it should be very very good but whenever i've taken it it's been eh, eh, it's fine you know i guess on the subject is decide whether your list is sort of proactive or reactive um, are you going to be asking questions or answering questions uh and in this context a, a question is like a fast unit that hits hard like if uh i'm you know we're going to use trident realm as an example uh, which is probably a bad example for people listening, but it's what I'm most familiar with. The full formation, uh, they are speed six, wild charge D3. So, you know, they've got an effective threat range of 16 inches. There's an aura in there. It doesn't matter. 16 inch threat range. If I move my Thule up so that they're 14 inches away from something slower than them, that's a question. That says, hey, are you going to let me charge you next turn? Or are you going to back up? Or are you going to use chaff to block me? Or are you going to shoot me off? Et cetera, et cetera. So, Decide uh, whether you want to be asking or answering questions. It's usually better to be asking them because if you are just reacting to what your opponent does, then you you yield the the decision making process to your opponent. Um, and different units are better at different things. You know, speed five pike blocks. They don't ask questions; they answer it. Uh, if your opponent says, "What are you going to do about this horde of dracons facing you down?" you you can push forward your pikes and say. Please go ahead. Different elements in your list will ask and answer questions, ask and answer different questions. Um, and when you're thinking about building a list, it helps to keep in mind the types of questions you expect to encounter uh, at at a, a given day, whether that's a tournament or a game day or playing on your kitchen table with your kid or what. Um, though if you're playing with your kid, you should probably not think too hard about what goes into your list. But yeah. Uh, Think about the types of answer, or the types of questions you expect to encounter, and either bring answers to those questions, or do your best to dodge them in matchups. How does your list building process consider how many drops you're going to have? I like to go high. Um, it's more fun for me personally to have more moving parts, particularly because the way I approach kings is that it's basically a peace trading game. Um, which now you'll note, I am not an alpha strike player. I do very poorly with fast units if they're expected to kill things and survive. I have a habit of getting that sort of stuff killed by being like, too aggressive and not supporting it and then trading down, which is to say I'll kill something that's worth less than the unit that I'm using to kill it. And then my unit dies in return. Uh, and then I lose the game. 
Um, so the way I play it is essentially by asking a lot of questions to which there are plenty of fine answers, but uh, the end result is that I gradually come out ahead. And that's just way more feasible if I have multiple pieces because then I can afford to throw some away. Um, and especially if like the, the concept of peace trading, you want to trade up, which is to say, give up a low value unit in exchange for a high value unit. Um, and one of the best ways to do that for me is by exploiting a unit's strengths, right? Because like, you know, if, if you're playing a balanced game, which Kings is pretty balanced, then if you're putting units in sort of mediocre situations, you're going to get mediocre results. Um, so, and I, I mean, Phalanx is a great example. If you can face off a Phalanx unit against a cavalry, large cavalry flying unit, chances are you are going to trade way up because their offensive power drops way down compared to the points they're paying for it. So the more pieces you have, and especially if they're kind of weenies, like, you know, oh, the, the, reg the, the um, pike regiment in Kingdoms of Men just gets me, it gets my knickers in a twist. Like that, uh, that unit looks fantastic. 120 points. As soon as you can stack a minus two to hit, it's just like so punishing for anything going into it. But yeah, I, I, I try to build heavy, but I also really enjoy like some, some luxuries, like, uh, you know, 160 point individuals that run around harassing stuff. And it's, it's really hard to have a high unit strength and uh, unit number count when you're spending a lot of points on, you know, wizards and stuff, but uh, I like them. So, well, let's talk a little bit about individuals. You know, there, there are certainly players that every unit has to be scoring, right. You know, and others are like, I, I take the units I need to make the army work. My perspective here is going to be a little bit useless because I come from Trident realm, which is the faction of like insanely overpowered individuals. Um, <laughs> my, my favorite anecdote, now is a while back I was listing out the overpowered individuals in Triton Realm and I forgot about Ector. Like the, the faction is so stacked that Ector The Defense even... Six guy with Ensnare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Defense Six, Ensnare, and Phalanx, and an eight an eight dice wind blast that does damage. And he's six attacks on threes with crush two. Yeah, like he's obviously absurdly good. Uh and he doesn't even make my top five list. Like crazy stuff. So uh, that being said, in 2022, I took four individuals in Trident Realm to Masters, and I came in 61st. Uh, in 2023, I took three individuals and came in first in battle. You know, that's, that's not the only factor at play, but you can definitely have too many individuals where after a certain number of, like there's always going to be a certain amount of attrition where units meet and you're both sides are losing stuff. And then whatever's left over is what actually does the scoring. And if what's left over is four individuals that can't score, you are probably going to lose the game. It's important to be pretty ruthless with your list building. Like if, if, if something's there because you like it, that's, you know, it's like, it's one of those things where it's important to build armies you like because it's a game and you're here to have fun. But in terms of competitive success, be very, very critical of what you're bringing and make sure that it's really in there for the right reason. And if, you know, you've got two wizards with Bane Chant, uh, you know, maybe consider cutting down to one. Unless you're goblins or kingdoms of men where the two wizards together cost like 90 points or something. But yeah, 
it, uh, it, it definitely pays to think about how much support you're putting in, particularly when it's support that does only support. Like we're talking about the war drum earlier. That's still a unit strength one monster. I don't remember if it's nimble or not, but you know, turn six, it can walk over onto a token and score you a point. And that's, that's great. Whereas if it's Northern Alliance, the, the Thane with Talonar's standard that gets rally one. So sort of a similar support rule, but turn six, if it's the only thing left alive, then it has nothing to contribute. You know, what's your thoughts on unit strength as part of the list building process? Yeah, it's, it's not, it doesn't usually make it into my priority list. Um, I often try to think about unit strength um, and like, like pad it out. Things like um, in Northern Alliance, the uh, dwarf clan warriors. The regiment is, I think, 115 points. It's unit strength three and it's defense five. Now it has ordered march. It's got fury. Like it is a great little unit. So adding one or two of those just for sort of pure scoring pressure, where they can take a punch. They're also cheap enough that if they sit in the backfield on a token all game, it's not a, not a big loss. Um, I I really like those units, but like they're they're not flashy. They're only fun in as much as you can derive fun from their like uh, exceptional value. If you can <laughs> look, look at your spreadsheet, which of course you have a spreadsheet, you wouldn't play Kings of War if you didn't want to build a spreadsheet. But yeah, on the table, they're not very exciting. So I often find myself cutting those elements for other priorities. But uh, that being said, at like twenty three hundred points, if I find myself under 24 unit strength i start to worry i always love a list that's you know up around 28 or 30 like that kind of makes me feel warm inside but i never play those lists somehow so yeah it, it, it doesn't uh, like i think that number of scoring units is much more important than unit strength because uh, a one to zero is way more common than a four to three for example what you've just said resonated it's the durability of that unit strength as well you can have cheap unit strength that can sit in the back but can get shot off versus the clansmen you just mentioned they're much harder to shift because kings is mostly scored at the end of the game um what's surviving at the end is much more important than what's moving around in the middle of the game um, you know there's sort of some exceptions but by and large so something that lives to the end of the game you know like it, when, when you're playing against a similarly skilled player where there isn't a, a horrible matchup for one reason or another, chances are a lot of stuff is going to die. Like, you know, there are certainly games where you, both players play KG and total attrition is like 700 points. But certainly in my experience, a lot of the time you both end up with, you know, three or four units left over. So what those three or four units are has a much bigger impact on the game than, you know, how many unit strength you started with talk to me about specifically chaff in your list building process it's a sometimes for sure um and mostly when i have access to like the very best chaff in the game um like some examples really are uh tidal swarm in trident realm and and it's again a very extreme example where uh, if you throw basically any shooting at it it will die um but in the right scenario like if if it's a hindered charge into them because they haven't snare, and if you have some bark skin to support, like you can do some absolutely absurd things. I have had Tidal Swarm survive for like three turns consecutively against like real units. We're not talking like Snow Fox is trying to kill them off here. 
Tidal Swarm, um, Snow Foxes are actually an example of really good chaff because they're they're for their price they're really fast. They got that Pathfinder and the Nimbles. You can put them where you where you want them. You know, Gargoyles are a classic a classic one. But much better players than me have said everything is chaff if if you need it to be. Because at the end of the day, what matters is that you come out on top of the the various matchups in the game. Um, so. You definitely shouldn't always include chaff, as far as I'm concerned, but you need to have a plan, right? Like, if, if you're including units like uh, Tyrants and Salamanders, um, Frostfangs in Northern Alliance, Soul Reavers in Undead, like, really, really strong, pure hammers that will hit extremely hard if they have an opportunity to charge, you need to think about... Um, how many units or how likely you are to come up against an opponent who can kill them before they have an opportunity to fight. Um, and then what your plan is in that case. So like chaff units, like let's talk about snow foxes and frost fangs. Snow foxes are a classic for throwing away to make sure that your hammers can get a favorable matchup. If you don't have any hammers that need that, like, uh, you know, the, the, the Green Lady Alpha Strike Army is a good example, where it brings a lot of speed 10 flying hammers. You know, it's not technically the fastest thing in the game, but it's sort of the fastest thing in the game. So spending points on chaff to protect them when their protection really is aggression. You know, it's what, like the, the best defense is a good offense. I don't believe that's true, but in some cases you can take the lesson, right? So have a plan on how you want to do work with the units that want to do work and support them accordingly. And sometimes that means chaff and sometimes it doesn't. Talk to me about inspiring. I definitely try to include not as much as possible, but I like having too much uh, rather than too little. Um, I I mostly play at 2300, so I don't have a lot of insight lower than that. Um, But I absolutely never bring less than three and I'm much more comfortable with four. Um, and like, you know, if you've got three very inspiring, that gives you pretty similar coverage to four inspiring. Um, uh, but then also the type of unit matters a lot as well. Like if it's on just a, a army standard bearer, its job is to stand around and be inspiring and give an aura now, but like, it's, it's sort of a, a pure support role. Whereas if it's on a Lord on Frostfang or like, a, a succubus, What's the what's the hero succubus? The, the, the seductress, like mm-hmm. it probably wants to be out bullying things, like you know chasing heroes or you know picking fights that it knows it can win. You at the very least want you want it to be able to take advantage of an opening to go and mess up your opponent's day. Um, so if if you only have three inspiring and one of them is one of those sort of like opportunistic troubleshooter units that might want to you know, fly off onto a flank to take advantage of an opening, then it can leave the rest of your army unsupported. So yeah, depending on what your, what your, uh, the makeup of your army is definitely, I would tend to go heavier, but I also, uh, I suffer, uh, like disproportionately, uh, large psychic damage from spiked rolls. Like whenever I've got a, a unit that takes two damage and then my opponent rolls a 12 and routes it, I just like just want to cry, you know. So my my policy is to always keep everything inspired really as much as possible. Like I have to have a really good reason to not have something inspired. 
how is the changes to the standards in the Clash of Kings 2024 book going to impact the number of sources of inspiring in your list? As far as inspiring goes, not much, I don't think. They're much more interesting for the auras, if you ask me. Uh, however, that comes from, from a perspective of almost exclusively building in armies with good inspiring. Was it Big Red Book that made, uh, that got rid they of- They got rid of the, conditional inspiring? Yeah, yeah. Whatever that was, some armies like made out like gangbusters. And Trident Realm and Northern Alliance were two of them where they had a bunch of like okay heroes with conditional inspiring. And when that inspiring went to universal, like they're just like a crazy value. Um, like for those heroes, inspiring is basically free. You can look at your, your Thule heroes, the depth or eternal, like just, you know, a variety of stuff where you're, you're paying for a good hero and it also happens to be inspiring. So it's really easy to get four just like by taking four heroes. Yeah. So for, for me personally, the uh, army standard bearer change to very inspiring isn't going to matter. But like in elves, for example, they don't really have free inspiring if you want. Like, you know, there isn't a, a weird large infantry elf hero that didn't used to inspire and now does. So although I'm not that fussed on the Rampage 3 aura from the elf standard bearer, uh, they might bring one for like a 50 point source of very inspiring. We've had a lot of discussion about finding the efficiency of the unit, right? And making sure you're trading up. Well, how does magical artifacts play into that? Are you a guy that likes lots of units? Or do you find you have to have these guys equipped to do their job? Yeah, I tend to run very lean on artifacts. Um, specifically because like they are fundamentally overpriced. And that, that's by design, right? Um, so, like... When you buy the Brew of Strength, you're paying 40 points on a Horde. Uh, no Horde in the game pays 40 points like in its base cost for Crushing Strength 1. So you have to overpay in order to get that, that stat advantage that you want. Uh, and usually that's not what I'm after. I would rather just you know bring more, more units, more bodies. Um, but notably, you can really change the role of a unit with an item. So even if you're overpaying, you're not really comparing apples to apples there because uh, like, let's talk about dam busters in Trident Realm. They're melee four, crush one, thunder two, and they're like 250 points or whatever. I never play them. I don't think they're very good, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Without an item, they don't hit very hard. They're not that tough, etc. With an item, like give them sharpness, for example, and now they're almost 300 points, which is like crazy expensive. But now they've got 18 attacks, hitting on threes, crush one, thunder two. Like that stat line can do things that nothing else in the army can. So if you want just like a real, a real concentration of force to be able to break through a line, like if if your if your list needs that, you feel, then it kind of doesn't matter how much it costs. If you get the returns out of that investment, um, that being said, there are a lot of extremely efficient artifacts that are very popular, and I love them. Uh, your blade of slashing, your mace of crushing, you know, healing brew is kind of low impact, but still, like basically all the five point ones are like so good, just like a really really good value. Um, and then things like the orb of towering presence for ten points can, you know score you if it scores you one victory point then it's by far the best 10 points you spend in your list um yeah but i i rarely spend many points on the the big ticket items 
specifically because they're just not very efficient and I really value efficiency. Yeah, I could see you, you would be shopping in the discount aisle, right? Yeah. So absolutely. rather than strength, they're probably using <laughs> Helm of the Drunken Ram. Yeah. Talk to me about scoring systems and how that will impact, potentially impact your army list or army construction. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the two that I'm most familiar with are Northern Kings and Blackjack. Um, I probably prefer Blackjack. I'm, I'm not that fussed, um, but Northern Kings bugs me a little bit because I feel like um, the 40 and 50 millimeter scoring heroes are already so good. And Northern Kings, a few of their scenarios, the um, bonus scenario points are based off of number of units rather than unit strength. Um, so it sort of doubles down on rewarding having more scoring drops, like, you know, your ogre sergeants and berserker bullies, those sort of things. Um, so that's just like a, a minor, like, annoyance more than anything. It just makes me um, like uh, Northern Kings a little bit less. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in securing a medium-sized win than going for a big blowout. Um, so playing to win rather than playing um, to think about your overall tournament success is, is sort of where I come from. And that might not be the right way to do it. Like, you know, at the end of the day, if you, if you care about your standing in a tournament, you have to understand the scoring system and you have to understand how your behavior on the table can impact your overall success at the event. Um, so, you, you know, if you get to a situation where it's game five and you're whatever, fourth or fifth overall, and so you need that big, big blowout win in order to have a chance of coming in the top, then maybe you take some bizarre risks that have a chance of throwing the game to your opponent altogether. But if, if what you want is to get that, that high placement, then maybe that's the right choice for you. It's not usually how I approach things. Um, I'm, I'm much too sweaty and worried about my, what's right in front of me. <laughs> to think about the big picture like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, your, your priorities for, for scoring are pretty much the same, regardless of what system you're using. Uh, you've got to be able to score loot tokens, objective markers, and area zones sort of thing. It, it doesn't come into my, my decision-making that much. What about speed and or flyers in your list? Obviously, it's what do you want to include in your list from an offensive sure. perspective, but also to counter maybe what the opponent brings. Yeah, I mean, that that circles back a lot to the, the question and answer sort of thing. Like, speed is a question. Um, because there's, I mean, there's a lot, a fair bit of random wild charge now, but Kings doesn't have the random charge distance built into its its core formula. And, you know, like you get a wild charge D3, that's a, a pretty minor positional difference, whereas I didn't even play 8th edition fantasy, but it was 2D6? Yeah, 2D6 plus your movement. That's a huge variable. In a game like that, you don't have the ability to control what what like can possibly charge whereas in kings you are basically in well i shouldn't say in control of what can charge you but you have pretty full knowledge of what can charge you and you can make your decisions accordingly um so just being fast puts a certain amount of pressure on your opponent as long as those fast things actually you know what not even as long as those fast things matter like uh knuckers are a great example they're speed nine but they've only got six attacks. They're six decent attacks, but you know, you're not breaking anything in the front with six attacks. The ability to charge puts a unit where your opponent has to think about it. And 
And especially if you're playing on a clock, it is so much easier and faster to just decide to not be charged than to figure out whether each individual charge actually matters to the outcome of the game. So if you've got a line of speed five and six stuff, if you can sprinkle in some fast stuff to, you know, put that, that I call it a cone, that, that 90 degree arc, you sweep that, that charge distance across it. If you can put some long thread arcs interspersed with your other stuff, it controls how your opponent is able to approach and like, you know, you're sort of, you're preemptively answering the question by asking your own question saying, Hey, I've got fast stuff here. Do you want to, do you want to have the option of being charged by it? And even when it would be totally fine, like the, the worst thing is when, when my opponent sort of calls my bluff in that respect, like, Oh, you want to charge the front of this unit with your knucker? You go right ahead. I will march on forward and threaten your other stuff. So uh, speed is super good. Uh, it's good for getting onto objectives. It's good for um, out-threading your opponent so that your question is the one that matters. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good to be fast. Uh, most of my lists are sort of medium speed, but, you know, again, like speed is one is one solution or one answer to a question. Um, you know, Phalanx is sort of another where most of the fast stuff is either cavalry or flying. Um, so if you can, if you can mitigate the advantage of your opponent's speed, you don't need as much of your own. Do you ever try to incorporate different speeds within the army to give different threat ranges and that kind of thing? Guess I do. I've never, I don't think I've ever approached it from, from that angle, right? But you know, I guess fundamentally, that's that's just supporting slower stuff with faster stuff. Um, you can you can get away with bringing some slow stuff if you also have some fast stuff. Um, I, I think of it as keeping my opponent honest. Where if I've got something, you know, it's sort of like the 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 knucker example where you've got the knucker to keep your opponent's units honest, then your slow stuff can move up without being threatened in the same way. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, it, if you have a bunch of speed 10, then there isn't really an additional advantage of bringing some speed five stuff. Um, but fast units can really support your slower units by sort of escorting them up the board and, and using their own potential to, uh, to keep your opponent from advancing recklessly. Yeah. It harkens back to what you said earlier about chaff, right? If you have things that can, yeah. uh, jump out there. Yeah. and intercept, right, and be aggressive, then you might be able to reduce throwaway chaff. Exactly, yeah. Talk to me about deployment. Do you kind of uh, have a specific deployment set up for the army? Are you trying to, like, uh, put your concentration and strength in certain spots or how you're allocating resources? Just do you have, like, a sequence in which you want the drops to happen? So just talk to me about deployment and how it affects your list building. Yeah, I mean, you've you've pretty much touched on the major points there. Um, usually the very first thing I do when I walk up to a table, um, is decide, um, where the sort of open lanes are and where the important terrain is. Um, and depending on what's in your list, like some stuff really wants to not be in terrain. If it doesn't have Pathfinder, it probably doesn't want to be in terrain and stuff. Some stuff really, really wants to be in terrain. Um, Thule and the Trident Realm Formation are a perfect example. They're Pathfinder, Stealthy, and Ensnare. 
So uh, terrain benefits them superbly. Like they, they want nothing more than to park in a forest or a pond and just lurk there. Um, so terrain is usually the first thing I consider um, deciding, you know, who's going to go into the rough terrain. And then, you know, most of the time you'll decide in, in list construction, what units are like specifically designed to support other ones. Um, you know, the, the new auras and the army standard bearers are a good example where most of them affect only infantry. So it doesn't make sense to put your army standard bearer with your cavalry. So then you got to think, okay, well, who's going to be inspiring for those cavalry? It doesn't do you any good if you, if you swap those two around. Um, so yeah, although I don't often do strict battle groups as such, um, keeping things where they, where they sort of need to be, making sure that I'm not screwing myself over with terrain is a big one. You know, to a certain extent, it, your opponent's list matters as well, um, particularly things like um, fast, nimble units. You know, they got some, some Tundra Wolves. If you leave a flank of the table um, sort of on its own, there's a real opportunity for something fast to come around and cause you like some severe headaches. Um, but then, you know, if you spread out too much, trying to cover the entire table, then you, you risk not supporting your, your core stuff well enough to, to get the job done. How does universal battle or the availability of universal battle affect list building? Because, I mean, it feels like that's a tool that now you can really do a lot of trial and error with a lot less pain. There's no hobby. There's, you know, just talk to me about the impact that universal battle has had on your list building. So on mine personally, not a whole lot. Although um, getting crushed on UB about 10 months ago uh, stopped me from bringing Rordia to Masters. Uh, which I expect I would have gotten about another, you know, 61st place if I had. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastic resource for rapidly testing stuff. Um, and especially, like, I have often felt a little resentful of the subscription cost for Universal Battle. Not, not that it's unreasonable. Like, I don't mean to disparage whoever it is that's running it. Um, but just purely in comparison to Tabletop Simulator, which I paid 10 Canadian dollars for like six years ago. And I just own it. Um, that being said, the Kings of War tabletop simulator mod is okay. But yeah, universal battle, as much as it's a little bit like 2002 aesthetics, uh, it's very, very functional. And uh, it was th- just this year, I think that they added all of the, um, Kings of War armies to the the default armies, right? Um, so it's actually pretty usable if you don't subscribe these days. Um, so yeah, if if you've if you've ignored it because of the subscription cost, um, I would definitely recommend giving it another look. It's a lot easier to use for free these days. Um, that being said, me personally, I have never had much in the way of hobby shame, so I will do a lot of rapid testing with like some truly truly just unforgivably ugly armies where it's just blank bases with like mm-hmm. a single just cardboard mo- yeah a single <laughs> model tacked onto it uh but yeah i i really stand by the value of testing things out before committing to a long hobby journey but you know i'm i, I focus a lot on the the mechanics of gameplay as well you know even over and above the uh the value of the hobby so for me for me it's important 
and on that notion, have you ever had the situation where you've went the other way and you've built something and you've put in so much effort. Now you feel compelled that this needs to be in the army, even uh, if it's suboptimal at this point. I mean, a little bit. That's, that's not usually a problem for me because it takes me so damn long to hobby much of anything. But uh, yeah, you know, sometimes you put a unit together because you're expecting it to perform one way. Uh, and if you happen to do an exceptionally good job on the, the hobby or the paint of it, then uh, <laughs> it can definitely outstay its welcome on a pure competitive level. And uh, I, I, I will encourage you to kill your darlings if you care about winning. Uh, but also, it's totally valid to care about how you win more than whether you win. How does the first turn dice roll impact your list construction? Gosh, um, I don't think I've ever thought of it from that angle. But uh, first turn dice roll can have a big impact. And it's important to have, like, it's important to expect to lose, right? Um, so something that uh, has stuck with me was I deployed a horde of Nyad ensnarers, which are uh, ensnare, defense three, regeneration four plus. I deployed them out of cover, and I did not win first turn, and my opponent, uh, with his many glide stalkers, shot them to death. So I lost them before they had an opportunity to activate. And I think they were a few inches behind a pond, so they would have liked to walk up into it, into cover. Um, but if you deploy a unit such that it can be killed, uh, then maybe it will be. So if you're, I mean, be cognizant of the weaknesses of the units in your list. And if they have weaknesses to shooting, especially, then uh, do not deploy them in the open, right? Like uh, the, the best way to not lose to, to spiky shooting dice is to just not have the opportunity to get shot that way. Because, you know, it's, it's a dice game. Dice swings, it's not even that they happen. It's that they're like very much a part of the course of the game. Like the, the average dice roll occurs over, you know, thousands and thousands of sequences. So in any given batch of dice rolls, there's gonna to be tons of crazy results. So like it's it's not even a planning for the worst situation. It really is like crazy dice rolls are happening constantly. Um, so if they're going to punish you over and above, you know, just the, the standard bad dice, then don't let it happen if you can avoid it. And then you can avoid it on deployment, right? Like when it's, when it's mid game and you just have to take a risk and say, okay, there's a, a 40% chance that this unit's going to break. If it's charged by that hammer, I have no choice. I'm out of pieces to stall. I have to take the risk on deployment. You don't have to take the risk. Like even if it slows you down a little bit, you know, put them behind a forest, put them behind another unit, put them on another flank, just, do what you have to do. Um, but it doesn't really affect my list building so much as the way I play a given list. Just, you know, be really intimately familiar with each and every part of your list, what it needs, what it doesn't want to see. What's the most overlooked thing that will impact if your list building is successful or not? Well, probably if I had a good answer to that, I'd be better at the game than I am. Um, but uh, I, I guess I would say... Um, making sure to set a unit up for success um, because like the game's pretty well balanced, but you know, you, you pay so many points for a stat. You want to make sure that you're getting the most out of that stat. Effectively, you want to make your units overpowered 
via circumstance. So take a, a sort of average unit and put it in its very best matchup and it's going to shine. Um, and then accordingly, like build your list with overlapping strengths that support each other so that you can, you can really take advantage of that. Um, like ice elementals are a pretty interesting example because the, the best that an ice elemental can do is move up into a flank, shoot into a unit and then get surged into that flank. So instead of getting 18 attacks uh, on fours with crush one, you're effectively getting uh, 54 attacks. Did I do that math right? 18 times three. A anyway, triple attacks. Cause you get the, the shooting attack and then the double on the flank. Um, all hitting on fours, all with minus one to the save. Um, but like that's that's pretty hard to set up, right? Like it's it's really really powerful, but your opponent's not going to give it to you, and they're only speed six. So bring units that help that happen. Um, like if if you get like a, a horde of uh, ice naiads, for example, if something charges into them, you know, unless they put a lot of stuff into it, they're probably not going to break those naiads. Then you've got a unit stuck in combat, and you can't shoot into a combat. So you kind of want things that your opponent has to charge and they will break. So you can look at pack hunters. Like they're super cheap. They're pretty squishy, uh, but also they have stealthy. So they're kind of hard to shoot off. So if you have pack hunters nearby ice elementals, if your opponent charges those pack hunters, they're probably going to kill it. And then with that unit dead, now you have no reason, like you have no unit to counter charge into it. So it's out in the open. So you can try to, engineer your triple attack ice elemental surge. So, I mean, all that being said, really, really try to create situations where your units shine at their very best uh, and build your list to, to try to think about those situations and maximize them. Do you have a list you want to share? I, I, I was thinking, you know, the one you took the Masters, I know we went over it, in great detail. So if you'd rather talk about something else, totally get it. Well, yeah, let's, let's roll right into a, uh, a Northern Alliance list here. You give us a little background on the list and where did the idea come from? So the idea came from, I am uh, a special little lad uh, and a, <laughs> a brand new local player uh, bought some um, Night Stalker minis as I'm building my, my Night Stalker list. And I thought, Oh, well, somebody else is going to be playing Night Stalkers, maybe I should look at something else. Um, and he had the Northern Alliance half of the Ice and Shadow box that he was selling for like a, a pretty aggressive price. Um, so I started looking at the list really earnestly um, and just sort of going over um, units that I thought would be fun. And yeah, um, Ice Nyads really stood out because that combination of Phalanx and Ensnare um, is so powerful. And then, um, like, <laughs> I, again, playing Trident Realm, I played um, Nyad and Snarers, the, the, the normal um, version of, of uh, Nyads for a long time. And it feels really, really good when they survive, like, a lot of punishment and then heal back just a ton of wounds. That, like, absolute demoralized look on your opponent's face, oh, it's delicious. There's, there's nothing quite like it. Um, so with Life Leech 2, and there's like pretty good healing support in Northern Alliance, you know, the idea of 
someone sending like a, a real legitimate hammer, like uh, um, mutants in um, Twilight Ken. Those things are so strong. But if you put a regiment of mutants into something with phalanx, they're not going to do very much damage. And it's like when it's phalanx and ensnare, now instead of hitting on threes, they're hitting on fives. So they put that into there. They do their you know six or seven wounds. You counterattack. You oh, first of all regenerate five plus. Then you life leech two. You know you end the turn at one wound. And all of that, like that whole offensive play that your opponent put forth, where they think they're you know taking taking a good opening, it results in nothing. Uh, that for me is very fun, which probably means I'm a bad person. So yeah, yeah, the ice or ice nads is how I really got looking. And then, you know, on a similar level, the ice elementals, where there there are a lot of points. What are they? The horde of ice elementals is two hundred and forty points, uh, and they're only defense five dash seventeen. So it's pretty easy to lose your investment without getting much out of it. But the the optimal use case where you can get that shoot uh, the the shoot and scoot the surge like the the rewards are so high that for me. It's worth chasing after uh, to get those those really like clear success uh, moments. And as you're going through it, kind of walk through the list and tell us what the, the, the roles for each unit are and whether or not they're interchangeable. So I will uh, have a precursor here. I haven't actually tested this list or anything quite like it. Uh, so it's, it's still in the development stages, but I'm pretty excited about it. So uh, it starts out with two regiments of Ice Nyads uh, with... The Phalanx and Tundra Fighters upgrade. Um, Tundra Fighters is pretty pretty optional. There's only five points, so um, you know it's one of those things that you could cut. But for five points, Vicious is like a, a pretty good value if you have enough um, Frozen in the army, which, which I do. Um, so their job is to particularly uh, against you know Alohai Dracons, the the new Frost. Law, the, the the ravens, the the raven riders, yeah. Um, you know, if it's got flying and or thunderous charge, then they're probably going to be extremely durable. Um, yeah, their job is to not die. So, uh, pick a place on the board where you want durability. Um, that that says to your opponent, if you charge in here with some of your your fast stuff, you probably will not break it, and then I'll have the opportunity to counterattack. Um, and in regiments, they're still very vulnerable to combo charges. Like, you know, even even looking at like Dracons, where a horde of Dracons is going to do miserable damage against um, a regiment of Phalanx and Snare. But if you put two hordes of Dracons, then your chances of breaking them go up to, to reasonable levels. I don't know if anyone's bringing two hordes of Dracons. I guess uh, Order of the Forsaken would be a better example. But like there are 155 points in this build. Um, if the opponent wants to put in like upwards of 500 points worth of hammers to remove them, then the chances are that my board position is going to be looking extremely good, where I can then force that into a bad trade for my opponent. So I really like the the localized durability they bring to the table. Uh, next up, I've got one regiment of pack hunters with javelins. Uh, pack hunters are overpowered, and I'm worried about what they're going to do to this competitive season. Um, it's not it's not as crucial with the javelins because you know it's shorter range, um, but they really 
work in support of the ice elementals, which I have two hordes of. Um, the idea being the pack hunters run in between the two ice elemental hordes. Um, so their, their shooting is very synergistic. It's all range 12, pierce one, hitting on fours. Um, ice elementals are shambling, so they don't really care about terrain, aside from when they're charging. And pack hunters are pathfinder. So that, that little sort of three-unit wide um, unit, no, unit's a bad word, um, the little contingent, um, they are happy to deploy in in or near terrain um, if it's going to be good for me. Um, and um, because the pack hunters aren't shambling, they can naturally be a little further up the table. So um, you can offer them to your opponent. And if they go in to kill the pack hunters, you know, pack hunters are very easy to kill in melee. Um, that leaves whatever the opponent put into them sort of between two hordes of ice elementals, which is a really bad place to be because you can probably cover your flank from one horde of ice elementals, but from two, it's much more difficult. Um, so yeah, next up is the two hordes of ice elementals. Uh, I've given one of them fire oil in this list, but that's very much a had five points laying around. Fire oil is another one of those really cheap items that sometimes is extremely valuable. Uh, and in most games, it'll do nothing, but it's five points. It's fine. Um, and crucially, it affects melee and shooting, which units like Ice Elementals really love to see. Um, another fine choice for items on these would be the Elite or Vicious item. Um, it's pretty expensive at 30 points, but again, because it affects both shooting and melee, it's a, a, a pretty sensible value. Um, yeah, the Ice Elementals, now that they have 12-inch range on their shooting attack, I think they're really, really scary. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to know how the, the sort of metagame this year is going to shake out, but 12-inch shooting that applies Frozen really uh, like spits in the milkshake of all the in infantry phalanx. So if this is finally the year where infantry with phalanx is popular, then this kind of shooting is going to be really powerful into that. Um, but also it's just good in general. Like, you know, it's a strong shooting attack. They're, they're somewhat tough. Uh, and if you can... If you can support them correctly, they should have an opportunity to do really good damage. Uh, next up, I've got a Frost Giant. Uh, this, I sort of go back and forth on whether to make him Hrim or not. Um, I really like the changes to the Frost Giant in this recent book. Um, getting Fury is like super, super nice. Um, so although Hrim is still very good, um, I think that the difference between the two of them now is small enough that it really comes down to what other inspiring you have in the list to, to, to whether you want to include that, that additional inspiring source. This guy is pretty much a flank support. Um, he's pretty tough and he hits somewhat hard. Um, I always do Slayer on Giants. I guess there's a chance that I'll decide Rampage is better this year, but it seems impossible to me. Um, so yeah, sending them into you know a, a horde of Siege Breakers or something where that Crush 4 is really is really nice. Um, and they're durable, so they can they can take a good hit to set up a flank with something else. Uh, next up, we've got Serakina. I have built other builds with an Ice Queen instead, um, but whenever you want Surge, Serakina is a pretty good buy because um, you know you, you can basically get two spells on an Ice Queen for about that 120 points. Um, and Serakina happens to come with Radiance of Life, which synergizes pretty nicely with the uh, regeneration on the Ice Naiads. And it heals up the uh, um, ice elementals a little bit, so she's there in a support role. 
the Fane with Talonar Standard gets Rally 1 on a decent little combat individual. Uh, and he's only 65 points, so that's like probably one of the best things in Northern Alliance. Um, a 65-point individual without inspiring is like, you know, it's not, not going to break any games, but it's one of those things where once lines meet, uh, you can send them into something to stall them up for a turn, can provide a little bit of um, flyer defense on a flank, and like you're, you're really bringing them for the, the rallying more than anything. Uh, I've got two Lords on Frostbangs. Um, despite the um, sort of gradual decrease of the power of the Lords on Frostfangs, they did get Tundra Fighters for free in the Northern Alliance update. So they're down to eight attacks now, including the Snow Fox, but eight attacks with Vicious is better than nine attacks without Vicious. So, like, they have, they still have some of that power as long as you've got enough support to keep your targets frozen, uh, which this list almost certainly does. Um, they're, they're both for the inspiring, you know, they each have a very inspiring, um, and because they're speed seven with wild charge one and the list is on the slow side. So a couple of 50 millimeter bases that can say, Hey, if you come within 15 inches of you, I can charge you because, you know, they're, they're nimble and height four. So they're really good at getting into their targets, um, is really good at keeping things honest, especially over on the flanks, um, because a unit with phalanx and ensnare really, really doesn't want to get flanked. Um, and fast stuff can often afford to take the time to sort of swing wide and threaten like that. So some some quick stuff to support on, on the sides there is really nice. Uh, I've got one Snow Troll Prime with the Orb of Towering Presence. Uh, again, the Orb is sort of a luxury item. If you don't have points over, you know, don't bring it. But 130 points brings you a very nice little sort of tanky 50 millimeter with inspiring. So it's a great little support piece in among your lines. Uh, and then I've got the uh, new formation in there, which is two troops of half-elf berserkers, which each get crushing strength one, in addition to their thunderous charge one, and a regiment of Frostclaw riders, uh, which gets rallying one for half-elves only. I think the Northern Alliance formation is really, really strong. Um, those troops of half-elf berserkers, they've got 15 attacks, hitting on threes, crush one, thunder one, uh, speed six, wild charge C3, with Tundra Fighters, so they're vicious into frozen stuff. They hit, like, really hard. Like, e each one of them is a... It's not quite into, like, proper hammer territory, but it's pretty darn close. That's on a 100mm by 40mm base. Like, they're really nice sort of second-line damage dealers. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty fragile. I guess in the rally, they are dash 14 with Iron Resolve. Uh, so they're not, like super super fragile but still you know any amount of concentrated attention will will kill them but if you can you know hold them for late game deliver them um use other stuff to keep your opponent too busy they're a really good sort of cleanup force um, and then the the regiment of frost claws it is 160 points once you pay for the ice bombs in the formation um, which is kind of a lot for a a 12-14 defense 4 unit, but it's one of those things where a speed 10 flyer to, to sort of cover your lanes can be really, really helpful. It's one of those things where, um, like the, the Ice Nyads, you're unlikely to kill them with most stuff on the first contact. But uh, unless you have something to make that charge a really bad idea, then your opponent can 
you know, charge them, bounce, and then kill them on the second turn. So something to just, you know, stand off to one side and have its its threat arc just sort of overwatching in support of the other stuff can be can be pretty useful. And that's that's the unit. It is uh, fourteen units with twenty four unit strength, and it has three individuals. That's only eleven scoring units, which is a little. Hang on, it has two individuals. 12 scoring units, which is much more comfortable. I was just, I was just wondering, did I have a list with only 11 scoring units? But yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's one of my current uh, lead contenders for, for where I want to take the list. Let's talk a little bit about Northern Alliance and their access to shooting, right? So you've got, obviously got ice elementals in the list. You've chosen to take pack hunters with the throwing javelins versus the bows, you don't have glade stalkers in the list. Feels like you're trying to build a synergistic list. Yeah, so I have tried like hell to get a couple regiments of um, pack hunters with bows in the list because for 135 points for a stealthy regiment with bows that hits on four plus, so good, like totally obnoxiously good. Uh, I think they're going to be really, really common uh, at tournaments this season. Um, so yeah, I, I really tried to fit some in there. Like the list really is fundamentally about supporting and delivering ice elementals. Because um, in, in some matchups, ice elementals are just crazy powerful. Like if your opponent is majority speed six or slower, like ogres, for example, like ogres have been really popular and powerful for, you know, it feels like ages now. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Um, so just walking up to just within 12 inches, uh, shooting two hordes of ice elementals and a regiment of pack hunters um, into something and then applying that frozen. like And then Serakina's Wind Blast also does damage. Um, so the list averages something like 14 damage um, into Defense 5 by sort of un- unleashing that barrage, which, you know, if, if you're looking at a 15-17 unit, that's probably killing it. Um and if your opponent is slow, you can afford to split that damage. You know, depending on how much healing they have, you can afford to split that damage up. Um, because, like in in melee, overkill really is the name of the game. You want to make sure that you hit sort of as hard as possible, so that you uh, the only thing that will fail is a double one. Because man, nerve rolls are are cruel masters. So um, you will always fail on a double one, and double ones. You know, that's like a almost a 5% chance. So, you know, if you got Dungeons and Dragons players out there, how, how often do you roll a one and a d20? That's how often you'll roll double ones on 2d6. Um, so, you know, like it's going to happen. But what, the last thing you want is to triple those odds by needing a four instead of a three. Um, so in melee, try to try to skew the, you know, like when it matters anyway, like where where you really need that reform to avoid being flanked. Uh, shooting, on the other hand, uh, most of the time, and this is more true with long-range shooting than with short-range shooting, whether a unit dies isn't so crucial, so you can afford to sort of spread out your damage a little more and fish for those high nerve rolls, where you know if, if you can do five damage to two units and a seven will waver, uh, then you know go ahead and take those chances. Whereas concentrating your shooting is better at Killing stuff, you know, the the more dice you roll, the more crazy things will happen. So yeah, the list really really punishes slower builds uh, just by 
by the nature of the, the style of shooting it is. And then the theory is that between the um, quick stuff, which is to say like the, the Lords on Frostfang, uh, the Giant, and the Regiment of um, Frostclaws, um, and then those acting in support of the Ice Naiads, I should be able to nullify really fast stuff by you know, just pushing phalanx down their throat and saying, hey, charge this or don't, it's all the same to me. And then that pressure can hopefully then buy me the time to move my other stuff up in support and start doing that short-range shooting to, to do some real work there. Probably pretty weak into shooting lists. Uh, as I say, I haven't got any any um, trials in it because um, although um, Ice Nyads are Regen 5+, plus, and I've got the Radiance of Life in there, you know, three regiments of uh, Gladestalkers can make pretty short work of them. So that, that'll have to test. And if if that ends up being the case, then I probably have to look at, you know, working in a bark skin or maybe uh, an ice queen with heel in there or something. Um, but yeah, figure out what my bad matchups are, uh, how those matchups are causing me to lose games, and then, you know, change the list if need be to, uh, to improve that. Have you started thinking about how you're going to deploy this army? Yeah, a, a lot actually, and in, in exacting detail, uh, the the core for, the core formation I'm going to call it is a checkerboard of um, ice naiad, ice elemental, pack hunter, ice elemental, ice naiad um, to really create the that um, yeah sort of core battle group um, with the, the the shooting at the heart of it. So really what the list wants to do more than anything is just move up and shoot stuff. Um, and the rest of the stuff, the naiads are tough enough that uh, a single hammer almost never breaks one of them or a single hammer. That's faster than the shooting range of the, uh, ice elementals that is. Um, so those flanks are sort of, um, secured from fast hammers. Um, if they put a lot into them and break them, then, you know, the ice elementals are pretty good at reacting I've got a giant and some lords on Frostfang and the um, the half elf berserkers in the formation to sort of follow up and and punish that that big investment of resources to pick those up. Um, and then, really, the dream is for something valuable to come in and kill the pack hunters in the center and uh, let those ice elementals move up and and do their grisly work. Um, and then spacing things such that nothing can get into the ice elementals without. Uh, everything going wrong basically um as for the other stuff it's all sort of working in support of that and whether that's really a viable strategy because that those five units are basically like 26 28 inches across which is only a third of the table sort of thing um so the list almost certainly needs to deploy on a refused flank um, and whether i can afford to do that without just uh yielding too much of the board it's tough to say, but that's that's where where the list starts anyway. So the, the the next phase of refining it and figuring out what works and what doesn't and what needs to change, that's all in the future. Talk to you about scenarios. I mean, obviously, what you just talked about trying to play this with a refused flank, that's obviously going to be impacted by the scenarios that you potentially would have to play. Yeah, it's got uh, it's got three nimble scoring heroes, which are uh, really great in things like control. Um, Plunder. I, I'm so bad with scenario names, but the ones with uh, objective tokens, where you just need to 
to jump on them at the end of the game. Um, and then it's got uh, two, no, three speed five infantry regiments. So it's pretty happy to play uh, push, you know, the, the, the new push where you can only score mm-hmm. one per unit. And like um, push in particular was something that I often thought about when I was building a list is, okay, if the scenario is push, who is going to take my tokens? Um, because if, you, if your list is all, you know, all nimble, all speed 10, or even all speed Shambling. six. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if, if it's, if you're playing undead, you just got to live with it. Right. Like there's not, right. I guess you could give it to, uh, no, ghouls are a pretty good, uh, pretty good carrier, but yeah, that's, that's, that's a great example. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's just become more dramatic now that you are sort of forced to spread them out that way. Um, so like, it's there's not always that much you can do about it. Like depending on the army you're playing, you know, if, if you're playing elves, you don't have any speed five, unless hundreds of the wild might be speed five. But yeah, it's depending on on the stuff that you are bringing and the way you want your list to perform, you may not have any better options. But uh, it sure is a, a nice perk to those slower units where you know if something has to be slow anyway, you may as well not spend points for speed. So you mentioned this is going to be a mantic army. Have you started thinking about the, the the color scheme? How are you going to model it up? How are you going to base it? Talk to you about the hobby. What's what? Where? What have you come to? You know, what have you thought about so far? I always hate talking about my my plans before I make uh, tangible progress because I am absolutely terrible for getting ten percent into a project and then abandoning it. Uh, so. Uh, this is my official notice that if you're listening to this now, if you see me at U.S. Masters, uh, what, September 1st, 2024, and I don't have the army I'm describing, you have my full permission to bully the hell out of me. Uh, <laughs> I, I will deserve no rest and no peace if I am not capable of accomplishing my goals. Color scheme, I haven't, I haven't. Uh, even built most of the models, so I'm still well away from from test schemes. Uh, but basing, uh, actually, part of what drew me to Northern Alliance is the truth of the matter is I was having a really tough time coming up with a compelling basing scheme for Night Stalkers. Um, I was looking at uh, there's a, a texture roller I found that had some sort of like you know uh, stone faces buried in dirt, um, sort of like a Kingdom Death vibe. Um, that's, that's sort of neat. Like it's, it's, it's been done, but it's sort of neat. Um, but just nothing was really, really gripping my imagination. Um, but what I want to do with Northern Alliance is like a a pretty colorful sort of tundra, um, get some of that, like really, really dense packed moss that grows in really arid climates, um, and work in some very warm tones, yellows and oranges and like pale greens, um, to have it, you know, very, very cold and arid, um, but also sort of lush in its own way. Um, like I'm, I'm a sucker for for bright, fun colors, and uh, yeah, basing that introduces color in that way, uh, and hopefully it means I can avoid having to learn how to do uh, snow effects. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome! I can't wait to see what you come up with. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping to do some, some at least a base test in the month of December to uh to figure out what that looks like and how have you found the new plastics good yeah the frost claws are incredible it (laughs) like it's it's funny the the value of the kit is good it just feels 
feels a little bad uh, to only get two of the bodies because you get you get enough of everything else. It's just those bodies. Um, but like it's it's one of those things where like I'm just when I think that way, I'm just hurting my own feelings for no reason. Like really, what's happening is they're providing alternate poses for the other stuff. Um, and I, I really, really like the dwarf riders on those. I'm not a big dwarf guy. Like, you know, dwarf dwarves are fine, but you know how there's dwarf guys, uh, like it, it, whenever, no matter how good dwarves are, there's always a certain baseline of people playing dwarves. And then when dwarves are good, like this past year, you got, you know, an eighth of the field are playing dwarves. Uh, that's, that's not me, but the like arctic punk dwarves that are riding these ravens they're super cool and they're good sculpts uh so those are good the uh half health berserkers are pretty good they are way way better than the studio pictures uh which is pretty typical for mantic uh but just rest assured that it applies here um the poses are a little weird like they are they are sort of running forward battle poses um, so it's really, really easy to position the arms in very stupid ways that just doesn't make any sense at all for the model. Um, so if you're, if you're building them, I would budget some extra time to sort of try out every combination of arms on every body to get the most natural pose you can, because it's, it's fully possible. If, if you're just, you know, picking from the pile and putting them on, you're going to end up with some goofy results. I also don't really like the capes, so I'm going to leave them off and probably, you know, model on like a, a fur ruff or something. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm quite happy with them. Are you a guy that takes into account uh, while you're building the model how they're going to go on the base? Do you intentionally build models to go specifically sp- to specific spots of the base to tell a story? Or no, I don't have that much foresight. I uh, I kind of wish I did, but my my most successful projects I've I've really sort of started from the ground up um like really the 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 basing has informed the rest of the stuff um but uh you know you you sort of get the models you get to a certain extent um between the poses that are available and and the way you build them because you know like i i can spend all day planning but sooner or later i got to start gluing stuff together if i you know want anything to get done so yeah just i just try to make sure that each makes sense on its own um, and I guess try to be cognizant of the fact that it will be part of a unit. So, you know, if you want if you want to pose it with its weapon flying all over the place, then just know that it's gonna it's gonna bump into its neighbor. Talk to me a little about the three D printed options here, because you, you mentioned you know obviously the ice naiads you have the ability to print those bits now to go with the plastic kit. You've got the frost claws and the and the elf berserkers slash pack hunters yeah so the all of the the resin support pieces i think in the army are now available in the vault uh which is great i've printed off a batch of uh, ice naiad arms and heads and a sort of sample kit of um pack hunter bow shooting and i think i did some weapon arms like from the the hearth guard upgrade um just to play around with um i'm sort of hoping that i can find enough um frost claw um, riders to make a, a regiment of dwarf clan warriors um, by the by, by doing arm swaps for um, tribesmen and stuff. Uh, whether I know enough people to gather up the sort of like twelve I'll need for a regiment, who knows? Um, but yeah, the the big gap in my repertoire now is the ice elementals. Um, I do like Mantic's ice elemental model, but I I will repeat ice elemental model it's just the one sculpt it's 
you know, it's one of the the remnants of the sort of misbegotten um, Vanguard Kickstarter. I am hoping that <laughs> that model comes to the vault in the next couple of months, uh, because you know, with the magic of digital editing, I can turn that one sculpt into four or five pretty sensibly. Um, if it doesn't, I, I haven't yet started, but I intend to take a look at the hex caster. Um, cause you know, the difference between a rock monster and an ice monster really just comes down to a coat of paint. So I'll take a look and I may repurpose those into ice elementals. It's like a bit of a faux pas cause you know, once I scale it up, it'll really look more like large cavalry than large infantry. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure uh, quite whether that's going to work. But um, yeah, I mean, worst case scenario, I'll buy some some resin ice elementals. It's not, not the end of the world. But uh, yeah, I I really really like using 3D printing to supplement the hobby. Um, so when that means I can you know fully print the models great um, but you know I'll, I'll no doubt print a lot of stuff to for for basing do some some old ruins I actually um, modeled up a a little not a texture roller sort of a texture stamp if you want uh, to try to get that that dense hard packed moss that I was talking about um, I haven't tried I haven't tried it yet but hopefully I can use it in some millipot to just create some good sort of areas of texture um, without relying on flock which is always you know, flaking off and making a mess. So yeah, the really the more stuff that comes to the vaults, the happier I'll be. Well, hopefully they'll get the ice elementals because then you can print it in a blue transparent resin, right? Somehow that never even occurred to me. <laughs> but yeah, that would be, be amazing. Yeah, I mean, I am always fantasizing about putting LEDs in models as well. And that would be a super fun example or a situation to do that. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. Well, we're excited. Can't wait to can't wait to see it. Yeah, and at the very least, be excited about bullying the absolute hell out of me. Absolutely. Eight, eight months time. We're to the most fun part of the show. Okay. It's where we're going to hit you with 10 rapid fire questions. Okay. So whatever pops in your head, you just give us the answer and we're going to move on. Okay. Number one, what's your favorite army? Abyssal Dwarves. What is your least favorite scenario? My least favorite scenario, uh, the the bad hidden token one, whose name I don't even remember. Uh, the one where they are revealed at the end of a variety of turns, not the one where they're revealed. Like at the bluff end of tokens. Three. Yeah, that, that's the one. That's yeah. the one. What drives you creatively or competitively? Well, both is what I think is going to be fun, uh, which we talked about a fair bit. But um, yeah, where I can pursue like really extreme highs, really. When you roll snake eyes. Uh, Darn it. When your opponent rolls snake eyes. <laughs> you idiot. What is your favorite hobby material? Uh, Milliput. What is your biggest gaming pet peeve? Uh, sloppy play. I'm I'm a real stickler. I'm probably the biggest like anal player that I know. If you had to replace miniature wargaming with another hobby, what would it be? I don't know. Reading fiction. What other miniature wargame would you not want to play? Uh, 40k is too boring an answer, so I will say Flames of War. If you had a romantic evening with Ronnie Renton, what would you whisper sweetly to him? It would involve bringing the ice elementals to the vault, and I will say no more. Really appreciate you coming on the show and chatting about your list building process. Always happy to, to pop on, yeah. We'll have Luke on again shortly when we get to close out the series on scenarios. We've still got to cover bluff tokens and kill. Those are probably the least interesting scenarios. 
Well, that's a perfect opportunity for me then. Maybe I'll actually learn their names for this one. Where can people follow you, Luke? I mean, technically I have a YouTube channel called uh, The Master's Tools, but I've put one one video and one short on there and I'm not I'm not Adam Ballard, so I'm not like regularly contributing uh, good content to it. Uh, otherwise, you can join the Kings of War Pacific Northwest Discord group or Facebook group. I'm not. I'm not like a super prolific uh, online guy. You guys have a pretty good active group up there, though. It has a, has a strong core, and if, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, then you should definitely join that because there are other people that will play games with you. You got any shout outs to anybody you want to mention from up that from up uh, in the Pacific Northwest? Um, I will shout out uh, James Greenman, who is currently living on Vancouver Island. Uh, he's uh, he finally finished his ogre army a couple months ago. Uh, which is super beautiful, and I'm super happy to see it. Uh, he, uh, as of the last time I checked, was in our top eight for our Masters rankings, so that's exciting. He hasn't, he hasn't been playing that long. And he offered me two Ice Elementals. So right now, he's my favorite guy. Well, awesome, Luke. You want to take us out? Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and uh, always remember, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons. 